Okay, so uh, this is week two um, of what is going to be a six-week class looking at the first 12 chapters of uh, the book of Genesis, which, as I said last week, um, you know, the reason to take a close look at these chapters is that we refer to these chapters constantly in our preaching, in our teaching. Um, they are fundamental. They are foundational to how we understand uh, so much of the rest of the Bible, to how we understand the gospel. Um, and so once in a while, uh, we want to dive in and just look at them directly. Um, last week, we uh, got almost all the way through chapter one. I'm going to pick up kind of where we left off. Um, I'll, I'll tell you now, it's going to be a challenge to actually get through all 12 chapters. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we said last week was that chapter one um, stands out um, from the rest of the book. The, the whole book of Genesis is largely structured into these 10 accounts, um, each of which begins with the Hebrew word uh, toledot, uh, which gets translated the generations of, you know, like what what was brought forth by. Um, Genesis 1 doesn't begin that way. It kind of stands on its own as a prologue uh, to the rest. But as we get into Genesis 2 this week, it'll be the first of those accounts. And, you know, you'll see right there in Genesis 24, it says, you know, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth uh, when they were made. Let me get a Bible. So that is where we are uh, heading today. So let me start. Last time, we, we got to the creation of humanity at the end of Genesis 1, um, verses 26 and 27. Um, and it went pretty quickly. And so I wanted to pick up there and then talk about the seventh day uh, also. Um, so just to... Just to, just to make clear, you know, just to make sure we get across the main points here. Um, as we said last week, you know, the creation of mankind is depicted as something um, very unique, very special, uh, different from the rest of creation, um, insofar as God speaks directly to them. Um, he deliberates he's over, over, over the creation. Um, the, the verb that's used there is different. Um, than, uh, than the verb for make in the rest of the chapter. Here it says, let us create, um, a word that was only used back at the very beginning of, of Genesis 1. Um, and then there's this um, you know, particular thing that stands out that, that God is created, uh, excuse me, that man is created. God is not created. Um, that's very important. Uh, man is created uh, in God's image. Uh, very distinct from the rest of creation where things are said to be made after their own kind. Um, so we want to talk about what, what that means. Um, we've actually talked about this a bit in other Sunday school classes. Uh, we did Being Human uh, last winter um, and actually spent that whole first class talking about you know, what are different ways that our culture thinks about what it means to be a human being. Um, and we talked about uh, you know, um, what the Bible says in response to that. Um, for a long time, uh, even theologians, the Christian tradition, um, you know, if you go look at what Augustine, what Aquinas, what Calvin, what Owen, you know, look, look at a lot of these guys, um, you know, what do they have to say about 
what makes humans human, uh, they'll point to capacities. They'll point to rationality, they'll point to the capacity to worship, they'll point to relationships, creativity. Um, but scholarship over the last 100 years or so, uh, comparing these, these words that mean image and likeness, uh, Tselem and Demut, um, to other ancient Near Eastern texts uh, and examples of, of what those words meant in that context, um, have realized that there's something a little bit more specific going on. Um, and what it is, is that to be made in the image and likeness of something um, is to be, uh, you can think of two R's. Uh, in fact, they share more than just the R. On the one hand, it's to be representational, uh, to show what the thing is like. But on the other hand, it's to be representative, um, you know, to actually play a role uh, where you are in some way a proxy, uh, a steward um, for the thing in whose, or the person in whose image you are. And I said last week, you know, the, the, the two places that we see these, um, these concepts in the ancient Near Eastern world are on the one hand in temples where uh, the last thing that you would put into a temple would be an image of the god. Um, and when you place that image there, on the one hand, it's a representation of what the god is like uh, in, some, in some visible form. But it's also representational in that the priests would actually go you know, and consult with the image for oracles about what they were supposed to do. And these things carried authority. Uh, and so there's actually sort of a, a representative form of governance taking place here. And the other place that you see this is just more politically, where you have kings uh, setting up images of themselves, you know, in those territories that were that were theirs, um, you know, as a way of, of marking their territory. Um, now, this is not to say that humanity does not have capacities, uh, characteristics that are very different from the rest of of creation, the rest of you know the animal kingdom. Um, it, you know, it, it's not to say that that we're not rational in a unique way. Uh, language uh, is very unique. Um, you know, our, our capacity to uh, worship, um, you know, if not completely unique in that, of course, the psalm calls for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Um, there is a sort of a, a reciprocity in the kind of um, the speech back and forth um, that, that humanity can enjoy uh, with God uh, that's very unique. But what, 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 what seems to be the case is that uh, these capacities are given to humanity in service to uh, the vocation, which is the image of God. So in other words, the image of God is not the capacities themselves. The image of God is the vocation. The image of God is being called into a relationship with God uh, in which you are to, in some way, reflect what God is like to creation and to rule, uh, to steward, to care for the earth on his behalf. That vocation uh, seems to be what's essential and central to being made in God's image. And then those capacities are given in service to that. Um, I think I have a quote. Do I? I ran across one this week, but I might not have put it in the handout. Uh, 
looks like I didn't. Um, and as, as we said in the, in the being human class, you know, the reason this becomes important ethically um, is because you run into the question of what do you do with someone who um, is human but does not have any number of capacities. Uh, someone who, uh, by virtue of being too young or too old, uh, by virtue of having suffered traumatic brain injury uh, or some kind of uh, illness, you know, for whatever reason, you know, is a human minus rationality less human? Uh, are they not human? Are they not made in the image of God? Um, if we understand um, uh, that the image of God is something uh, that depends on God taking the initiative to call us into relationship with him, and then capacities are given in service to that, um, then you don't end up denying humanity to someone who lacks the capacities. Um, questions about that? About the image of God? I, two other things to point out about the image of God, of course, is that Genesis 1, and this is gonna be a difference with Genesis 2, Genesis 1 presents the creation of humanity as being a single event. Um, although it is the creation of uh, something which exhibits a unity uh, in diversity. You know, so um, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So that diversity is there um, um, and, 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 and is part of the, the image. Um, and then the other thing to say is, is just uh, notice, you know, in support of this idea that the image is a vocation, notice that the very first thing that God says after he creates them in his image, he gives them this blessing, which, which is the vocation. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Yeah, T.I. Is the image of God vocational like not, not perspective, how does that affect people who deny God or how is humanity reflected in those who deny that vocation? Um, is that a fair question? Yeah, I mean, that is, that, is, that is a fair question. Um, so, so one thing we can say, it doesn't quite answer your question, but it's important to say is that the fall does not destroy the image of God. So sin doesn't undo it. We know this for sure because in Genesis 9 and also in the book of James, people after the fall are referred to as being made in God's image. So we can say for sure, you know, sin has not destroyed that image. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, but the nature of the fall, you know, the nature of sin um, is that, you know, we can turn, I mean, I, I think of, you know, being made in the image of God as encapsulating, you know, at the very essence of this is what we are. This is what defines humanity. The nature of sin, and it, one way to understand it is, is very much turning away from what you are. So that is a possibility. That is something that we are free to do, and it's tragic uh, when we do that. Um, now, God in his, I mean, so we have this doctrine of common grace, right? That uh, um, God's character and what he has made and the goodness of what he has made, his intentions for the world, all of that uh, can still shine forth in fallen humanity, you know, and in people, cultures, 
structures and all kinds of things that are that are bent away from him, you know, in in many ways. Um, that kind of better be the case. I mean, so another thing you say about sin, not only does sin not destroy the image of God, sin is not creative, right? Sin doesn't make anything. So whatever humans are, you know, it's still the case that everything that God has made is good, you know, and, and so this is difficult to articulate, but, but in a very real sense, you know, fallen humanity can still show God's glory, his goodness, goodness of what he's made, his intentions. Yeah, Jeremy. I mean, is there an eschatological aspect to that, then, that there is how we were made and what we were called to be and be confirmed in, which got messed up, but Jesus came back up. And, yes. Yeah, I, mean, I, think yeah. That, I think that even whatever it is that Adam and Eve are is not even yet what they're supposed to be. That's right, yeah. So... Yeah, the fact that God gives them work to do. So the fact that it's and, incomplete or hasn't been fully realized is not yeah. taken away from the reality of it. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a good, I mean, that's a great way of explaining why it is that I said that, you know, this book of Genesis is so foundational to our understanding of the gospel, right? Because our gospel uh, is a story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. And we are not yet to, to restoration. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's right. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about the seventh day. Um, so this is uh, the beginning of Genesis 2. Um, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's four verbs that show up here. There's four things that God does. Um, he finished his work. And notice it does not say he finished his work on the, you know, there were six days of doing work and then he finished that and then he rested on the seventh. It says uh, he finished, it says on the seventh day God finished his work. You know, and so in some way, this seventh day of rest uh, is the finishing, right? The work is not complete until the rest is entered into. Um, it says he rested. That means to put an end to, to come to an end, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament. Um, but um, it doesn't mean that God has ceased all of his activity. Right? I mean, there's this a bit of a puzzle where you go to John 5 and see Jesus say, you know, my father has been working and I am working all this time. Right? How do we make sense of that? Um, so this is where this, um, I mentioned last week, um, the idea that what we're seeing built in the first chapter of Genesis um, it's the heavens and the earth, um, but what it's meant to make you think of uh, is a temple. Um, so John Walton uh, is an Old Testament scholar at, uh, at Wheaton College who's written uh, a book called uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, um, which, which I recommend. Um, he, he might overstate the argument. You know, his argument is that the story of creation um, 
is a story about what things are for and not where they came from. Um, that might be overstating it. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. Um, but I do think he's right, you know, that Genesis 1 uh, is depicting the creation of a temple, you know, which is for something, right? A temple has a purpose. Um, in fact, one of the ways that you look at this story and you say, oh, this is a temple, is because the creation is for God to dwell with his people. Um, he, he, has, he has created this uh, ordered space. Remember last week we talked about the creation going from chaos to order. It starts off formless and void, kind of all jumbled up, and God starts separating and bringing order where there was chaos. Um, what we'll see in Genesis 2 is that there's this, there's this structure, you know, of... Um, it's almost like concentric circles, you know, going from uh, the sea, you know, which is maximally chaotic, uh, you know, to the wilderness, to the ground, which can be tilled, which can be worked. And then in the center of all of that, there's this garden, and it's the most ordered space. Um, there's things that show up in Genesis 1, you know, like precious stones that also show up in the temple. Uh, there's these trees that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, there's, uh, there's the fact that the garden appears to be built on a mountain. Um, and, and we know it's built on a mountain because it says that rivers are flowing out of it. And that's, that's how gravity works, right? Um, so there's all these things, you know, and, and ancient Near Eastern temples would either look like mountains or they'd be on mountains. Um, so there are all these things where you read Genesis 1 and you say, okay, this is, this is a temple. And, and the, the, the point of this, the reason I bring this up to talk about the seventh day, um, is that if this is a temple, then you ask the question, what does it mean for God to rest in his temple? Um, and this is what Walton talks about. And here I do have a quote. Um, so in the Lost World of Genesis, uh, what he says is, in the ancient Near East, when the deity rests in the temple, it means that he's taking command uh, that he's mounting to his throne to assume his rightful place and his proper role. Um, what that means is that for God to rest in his temple um, is not a matter of him, you know, completely ceasing all activity. Um, of course, it's not a matter of him getting tired uh, and needing a break. Um, what it means is that he's created the world. He has said it is good. It is good, it is good, it is good, again and again. Um, it's all set up the way it's supposed to be, um, although not, as Jeremy mentioned, you know, maybe not the way it's going to be. Um, but it is exactly the way it's meant to be, and he is taking up his rightful place uh, as the Lord in the temple, you know, from where uh, he rules, uh, from where he is sovereign, uh, from where he is very much still active. Um, you know, the point of this, you know, is that, and this is, and this is kind of, you know, you see some of this in the arguments that Jesus has with the Pharisees. What's the Sabbath for? You know, what is rest about? Um, is it really about ceasing all activity? Um, you know, he puts the question very pointedly. You know, if you have an ox that falls into a pit, you're just going to leave it there? Is that what rest means? Um, you know, what he keeps telling them, you know, in the sense that you get is, Sabbath rest is about enjoying 
the world the way it's meant to be. Uh, it's about enjoying the creation. Um, I, don't ha I don't have this in your notes, and, and we're not going to get there because this is Exodus. But it's really interesting. Um, there's a book called uh, Sabbath World uh, called Judy, uh, by Judy Shulovitz, who's written for the New York Times. Um, and uh, she, she's Jewish and you know, just has written this book about what the Sabbath is. And she makes the point that, you know how, uh, you know how the Pharisees had like all of these rules for like really specific kinds of labor that you weren't allowed to engage in on the Sabbath? Um, well, she actually, she actually has the list. There's 39. There's 39 specific types of labor that you're not to engage in on the Sabbath. And we usually hear that and we go, oh, these Pharisees, right, with their legalism, right? And, and sure, they were a bit legalistic. That, that, that's a problem. Um, but those 39 types of labor didn't just pop out of the sky. They weren't random. Um, those 39 types of labor were derived from the instructions that God gave to Moses for building the tabernacle. Um, everything on that list, you know, kindling fire, sewing fabric, gathering wood, all those things were uh, things that you find in the instructions for building the tabernacle. That's what you're supposed to stop doing. And if the tabernacle, right, remember, if the cosmos is a temple and the tabernacle uh, looks like the cosmos, which it does, I mean, it's got stars woven into its fabric, it's got tree imagery, like there's all kinds of things, like the tabernacle reminds you of the world, because they're kind of the same thing. Um, the Sabbath is the day that you stop creating the world for yourself. The Sabbath is the day that you stop and enjoy the fact that the world has a creator and you're not it. Uh, that he's created this world for fellowship with you. Um, that's, yeah, I mean that, 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 that is, I recommend John Walton's book because he makes this point uh, very clearly. Um, so God rests. Uh, on the seventh day. Other questions about that? That was a whole bunch of information. Yeah, Paula. Oh, so what does Jesus do? Every time Jesus runs afoul of the Sabbath, what's he doing? What kinds of things is he doing? I mean, he's healing people, right? Um, you know, at one point, he and his disciples are hungry and they're eating. Um, it, 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 he's putting things the way they're supposed to be. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that in our, in our, in, in our tradition, the, um, the most ardent Sabbatarians have always said that the Sabbath is a day to be devoted to uh, public and private worship and works of mercy. You know visiting the sick and you know and so uh, the most ardent Sabbatarians have never said that the Sabbath is a day to just take a 24-hour nap and not do anything at all you know you, you can actually be quite busy but you're to be engaged in um, a day of enjoying the way the world it's meant to be is meant to be which might involve you know putting some things right in a small way you know like visiting someone who's going through a hard time. Does that, does that answer your question? The ox, the ox well thing is okay, the ox is in the pit, not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I just see the examples as, um, the examples of the 
Uh-huh. Yeah. That is true. No, no, that's a that's a really good question that I'm not I'm not going to go into because it's big. But yeah, it, it it's it certainly is worth critically thinking about what it means to enjoy the world and and um, how do we do that as fallen people uh, who are drawn to enjoying the wrong things? I think that might yeah. That's a it's a big question. Um, God also blesses uh, the seventh day and he sanctifies it. So he, he blesses it and he sets it apart. Um, just, to, just to fill that out, what, what blessing means uh, in the Old Testament um, generally means endowing something with the capacity to reach its potential, to, to fulfill its purpose. Um, so, and the opposite is true of cursing something. When you curse something, you take away its future, you frustrate it in reaching its purpose. Um, and so one scholar uh, says that blessing the seventh day endows it with the potential uh, to be the day which God had intended for human experience. Um, and then to sanctify it, you know, just means to set it apart. Um, so it's not just good, but it's holy. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, the difference between sacred and profane um, is not the difference between, you know, good and evil, necessarily. Uh, you know, profane just means not set apart, uh, you know, allowed for ordinary use. Um, but to sanctify something is to set it apart. Um, so Abraham Heschel, uh, another Jewish writer who's written a beautiful book uh, called The Sabbath, um, you know, describes the seventh day as being a sanctuary in time. And it's interesting that in terms of if you you know you're reading through Genesis one and two, you read about a day being set apart and sanctified before you read about a place. You know the garden shows up in Genesis two. Um, okay, so to wrap up Genesis one, um, you know just to note uh, that this this theme of creation, um, you know shows up. Um, the language of creation shows up in two other events. Um, that on, on the one hand, there's the salvation of a sinner is described as being something so radical that it's described as being new creation um, by um, uh, by Paul um, in uh, in Second Corinthians five. Um, and the new heavens and the new earth um, are also described, you know, as in a similar way, being uh, a new creation. Um, despite the fact that, you know, what we see in, in Revelation, so the language there of new creation is meant to signify uh, how radical uh, and how complete um, the restoration is. Um, it is very much in, in Revelation, you know, as well as when you think about the salvation of a sinner, um, a restoration of something to the way it was meant to be. You know, not the destruction of the old thing and a complete replacement with something else, right? So when a sinner is saved, you know, it's not that, you know, what I am is obliterated and there's someone completely new in my place. You know, I am restored. My heart is regenerated. Um, 
to what I'm to what I'm meant to be. Um, and similarly, in Revelation, we see you know heaven coming down uh, to earth um, and uh, and and restoring. Um, and we do see. Um, Jeremy alluded to this a minute ago. Um, we do see in in Revelation um, the completion of a trajectory that wasn't done uh, in, in Genesis 1. So whereas God had separated um, the waters from the dry land, you know, had you know, pushed back the chaos to provide for a place where land, uh, where, where life could be sustained. Um, and remember we have that same imagery at the, the Red Sea, waters being separated for dry land to appear. Um, in Revelation it says there is no sea, so the chaos is gone. Um, and, and whereas darkness had been separated from light, but you still have this alternation, darkness and light, with every day. Um, in Revelation, there's no more darkness. And in fact, there's no more sun or moon. You don't need those because God himself is the light uh, of the people. Um, and so you do see this completed, perfected creation uh, at the end of, of, of Revelation that harkens back to, to Genesis 1 imagery. Um, any questions before we move on to chapter 2, verse 4? So if Genesis 1 was uh, a prologue um, and presented this, you know, you think of it as the, you know, the 30,000 foot view or quite a bit more uh, of, uh, of, of creation um, and this, you know, structure, um, Genesis 2 now zooms in uh, into uh, this purpose that I described, that God has created this uh, place you know, for the purpose of dwelling with humanity, uh, for the purpose of, of relationship, and for the purpose of worship. Um, and so this is the first of the Toledotes that I mentioned. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so in a sense, this is, you know, this is what the heavens and the earth bring forth. Um, um, so the main... Um, we're going to talk about the creation of man, the garden, uh, and these trees before we look at the creation of Eve. Um, so it says that God formed uh, the man uh, from the dust of the earth and then breathes life into him uh, and he becomes a living being. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting to notice the total rejection of a duality between like spiritual and material um, here in that, you know, he doesn't say, um, uh, it doesn't say, you know, God formed the body of the man from the dust of the earth and then breathed a soul into him as though, you know, one were inside of the other somehow. It just says he formed the man uh, from the dust of the earth uh, and breathed life into him. Um, he is formed from the ground. Um, that word there um, is Adama, uh, which you can hear the similarity to his name, right? So it's Adam, Adam, from the Adama. Um, and like I said, it's, it's uh, what we end up seeing um, is this 
set of concentric circles uh, that characterizes the world, you know, where at the very center of everything is this garden, which is this maximally ordered place where everything that you need to sustain life is there and provided. Um, outside of that is the adama, the ground uh, that you can work, um, you know, that will bring forth life if you work it. Um, outside of that is wilderness. This is where Cain gets sent um, when he, after he, after he murders Abel. Um, and so it's interesting to see that God forms the man from the Adama, but then doesn't leave him there. You know, brings him further in, places him into this, into this garden. Um, like I said, God had already sanctified a day, and now he sanctifies uh, a space. So this garden, um, the word there, you know, literally means an enclosed space. It's a walled enclosure, so it's protected. Um, it's shielded. That's where he puts um, uh, the man, um, you know. And in this in this place, um, this is God's sanctuary on earth. There's no toil required for food. Um, you know, man eats uh, what God provides him. Um, and again, there's there's all this imagery um, that uh, is is very definitely supposed to make you be, make you think of the temple. Um, you know, so again precious stones, river of life, tree of life, um, you know, all these, all these things, you know, are, are telling you um, that, that this is the temple, as well as the way uh, God describes uh, the man's role. So we've already had this vocation given uh, to humanity uh, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to rule over the earth, to subdue it. Now it says, uh, Genesis 2, uh, 15, the Lord God took the man uh, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And everywhere else in the Old Testament where you have those two verbs, uh, work and keep together like this, um, it's always describing the role of the priest in the temple. Uh, the priest works and keeps, uh, works and guards um, the, uh, the temple. Um, and so we're starting to see these offices, you know, so we talk about the offices of Christ, um, prophet and priest and king. Um, and in a sense, we see these same offices, you know, being given to Adam, um, that, you know, humanity has been set up to rule um, over creation, to be a king uh, underneath God's ultimate authority, um, that the man is to be a priest uh, in the temple. Um, in a minute, we'll get to the prophetic role that the man is supposed to play, uh, but sadly fails uh, to play. Um, so again, lots and lots of imagery telling you, you know, this is a temple um, uh, and, and, and the human you know, humanity is placed there as king, priest, um, for the purpose of dwelling with God uh, and worshiping him. Um, any questions about that? Yeah. So, I know previously we've talked about the historical Adam, but in like maybe 15 seconds or less, could you give your opinion on the historical evil? Like, what do you think? 
In 15 seconds or less? I don't, I don't want to derail you, but yeah. you don't have to answer that. Yeah. Um, I, so so let, me, let me say this, because maybe this was something that came up last week as well uh, without my really having planned for it, and so I don't think I was very clear. Um, my, my take on these things is I want to be careful to say, what is the text saying? and not try to get the text to say things that it's not saying. So like last week when we talked about the length of the days, I think the text is clearly saying, like there's a structure here, and that structure means something. That structure means that God is a God who brings order where there was chaos, that he forms, that he fills, that he puts kings you know, to rule over. I mean, there's all kinds of things that the text is saying. Um, the, exactly how long each day was and exactly what order they came in. I don't think those are questions those people were asking, and so I don't think that that's something the text is saying. However, the fact that the text, if it's not saying that, then it also doesn't preclude it, right? So in my view, this is what I said last week, like you can say, I think that Genesis 1 is giving you this, what's called framework, right? Framework theology. I don't think that precludes uh, a literal, 24-hour view. I think that you could actually hold hold both of those things. Right. Oh, so okay. Yeah. So I. I mean, I. So maybe you're actually asking an easier question than I was trying to answer. So my opinion is that like. Adam is definitely a historical person, right? right? And Eve is definitely a historical person, um, and that's and that's based, you know, primarily on the role that Adam plays in later theology, especially Paul talking about, you know, the first Adam, the second Adam. Like he's talking about a real person. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, it seems to be. I haven't thought as hard about that one, uh, and so my. Opinion, I guess, is that it sounds it, it, it sounds like it's describing a real place, also. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's much. I really haven't thought very much about that question. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like they were somewhere. <laughs> People exist in a in a place. Yeah, dark garden like. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've never. I, I know of no reason to doubt the idea that there's. A very real historical place being described here. Yeah. yeah. Jeremy? Um, is there one? No. Well, the, what's weird is nobody ever tries to find it. Yeah. Right? I mean, so I think. No, like, I feel like I've seen stuff that said, oh, it was this kind of in this region of the. But you mean like later, like. like, you, like you know, but nobody literally like, wanted to search for it. There's a few sort of, yeah, sort of yeah. like 20th century fundamental sites that have yeah. tried to think that they could. Use this as a map to do that. Yeah. Right. Um, but like, but like Moses didn't seem to care. Moses didn't seem to find it. I mean, so there's different theories because the geography that's given and the rivers that are given don't seem to connect at one, or meet up at one place. So yeah. now you have a flood coming. You have other th things are going like the geography changes. I think. And, and there, like the, there's a lot of some of the Jewish uh, commentary had lots of different hypotheses about that. In fact, one of them was that Jerusalem 
was the site that it was in, which is probably not true. But the, uh, <laughs> you know, that's almost certainly not true. But like, but there's a bunch of, there's a lot of that. So I do think it's, I do think there's an assumption that the inaccessibility of it after the fact has something to do with the fact that it will not be found. It will yeah. not be yeah. destroyed or something. Yeah. So, to jump to something else that I know almost nothing about, let's talk about the Tree of Life. Because it just doesn't say very much about this. It's one of those things, boy, I'd like to know how that thing works, and where it is, but we don't know. Um, you know, really all we can say about the Tree of Life is just sort of based on what the text does say, you know, which is that after the fall, uh, Adam and Eve are blocked from it. Right, they're, they're prohibited from, from accessing it. And this, we'll talk about this more when we get to the fall. Um, you know, this is very definitely depicted as being an act of God's mercy and his grace, right? That it would not be good for life in this state to be prolonged uh, indefinitely. Um, and so, the, you know, access to the tree of life is, uh, is, is taken. Um, tree does reappear in Revelation 2 um, and, and 22, you know, with an implication that in one sense we're back to the garden, but then again, you look at it and it's much more than a garden. Uh, it's a city. Um, yeah. Basically, Adam and Eve weren't the only people in existence, I think, is the um, thing that comes up. Is if you don't take the absolutely literal sense, then there were other people too. And just like, how do you explain that, or how do you justify that? Like, why are Adam and Eve the representatives? Right. Where there's like a mill, there's other right. people there too. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's absolutely a possibility. There are. There are conservative scholars that take that view as well. Um, so Derek Kidner is, is is one who, in his commentary, you know, points out, you know, when Cain is uh, banished, he's afraid of being killed by someone. Like, who are these people? Um, and and um, the question of so so one one possibility that he raises is that there could be that there was you know sort of a population, you know, of, uh, you know, what you would describe biologically as homo sapiens, right? And then Adam and Eve are selected as the representatives through whom God is going to deal uh, with, with humanity. Um, and I would, I would say through whom the image is conferred, you know, on all of, of humanity. Uh, why them? We have no idea. I mean, that, that I mean, that's in the nature of election. You know, why, why Adam and Eve, why Noah, why Abraham, why, you know, we don't know, uh, because God is gracious um, and, and works that way. Um, so, yeah, but it is, I mean, that's a, that's a life. And there's actually more work. I mean, there's some pretty good books out there. There's a four views on the historical Adam that will work through the different ways of, of interpreting that question and kind of present the pros and cons of each. It's, it's really worth reading. Um, yeah. Um, okay, tree of knowledge of good and evil, on the other hand, what does that mean? 
Um, so again, looking at the, the, the ancient Near Eastern context, um, you know, the current view is that there's probably, there's two interpretations that are most likely for what it means for this to be a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, you know, on the one hand, um, there's, there's the possibility that what that means is that to eat of the tree is to know evil through direct experience of it, right? So this, this relies on the idea that, you know, the Hebrew word knowledge, you know, connotes more than just, you know, facts, you know, but an experience of something. Um, but more likely and, and richer, I mean, it could be both of these things, you know, is the idea that the tree is meant to be the place um, uh, at which uh, Adam, uh, as priest and king, and now hopefully intended to be prophet, uh, judges between good and evil, you know, speaks good and evil. Um, it's very interesting, you know, the way this is supposed to work is, you know, humanity is supposed to hear uh, good and evil from God and speak the same thing, like keep the message consistent, keep it clear. Um, and so when we get to the fall, what we're going to have instead um, is that we're going to have Eve uh, see for herself um, that the tree is good, that the fruit is desirable, um, and take uh, and, and eat. You know, instead of, you know, hearing the word of God uh, about this tree, um, you know, and, and speaking. And of course, Adam is right there with her, uh, we know, because she immediately turns around. Um, essentially, the idea is that what was supposed to happen at this tree is that the serpent comes along, you know, and assails God's character, says, did God really say this? Is God really withholding this from you? Does God really love you, right? And Adam is supposed to be able to say, yes, he's given us every tree uh, in this garden. Uh, he, he, he formed me from the ground and brought me in, right? He's given us this whole world, you know, for relationship with him. We have everything that we need. Yes, he is good. Um, and then maybe he's supposed to kill the snake. I don't know. Um, but he's only supposed to say something. Uh, and Adam doesn't say anything. Adam doesn't have a line in that scene until the one where he starts blaming his wife and, and God. Um, you know, and so there's this prophetic role um, of judgment that's supposed to be performed at the tree, um, which, is, which is another way of saying it. This is, this is what the knowledge of good and evil was supposed to be. It's supposed to be the place where you know what good and evil is because God has told you and you trust him. Uh, you trust in his character. Um, other evidence for that is just the fact that trees in the Bible um, are often places of judgment. You know, the most dramatic sense in which that's true is, um, you know, there's this command uh, given. I think this is what I have cited, Deuteronomy 21. Look that up to be sure. I'm pretty sure this is where, is that where God says, don't let anybody hang on a tree overnight? Yeah, yeah. So Deuteronomy 21 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Why is that? Well, because symbolically, what it meant to put someone on a tree and leave them there was to say, we have done all that we can do to this person. Uh, we have punished him by death. 
That's all we can do. Now we're lifting his body up and giving him to the gods, right? So this is more than just Israel. Other cultures would, would have the same understanding. We're giving him to the gods so that they can keep going, right? They can, they can enact if there's more that needs to be done to this person. Um, you know, that's the, that's the cursing uh, that's involved there. Um, God is saying you will not do that. Uh, you will not hang someone on a tree. Um, you know, I have given you a law. Um, you know, I've told you what the punishments are. Um, and so you will not, um, uh, you will not curse someone uh, by hanging them from a, from a tree. Um, you know, and so you have this sense that, you know, trees uh, are places of, of judgment. Um, other places uh, in, in the Bible where this shows up, uh, the king of Ai is hung from a tree. Uh, Absalom, um, as he's trying to uh, escape, uh, gets caught by his hair in a tree uh, in a very strange way, you know, that makes you think it's kind of divine judgment. Um, in the book of Esther, when Haman builds gallows, what he literally builds, the word there, he, he builds a tree. Um, I'm not sure what Genesis 40 is, but Galatians 3, of course, is the place where Paul, you know, makes the connection we need to make uh, to Jesus, um, which is that Jesus was hung on a tree, you know, for us. You know, that Jesus is the one who, and he goes back and quotes, I think, the Deuteronomy passage to say, um, you know, we know that someone hung on a tree is cursed, uh, and Jesus was cursed for us. He took our curse. Um, so there's all these places with... Um, Trees playing this role um, of, of judgment. Um, we got five minutes. Um, are there any questions about that? All I've got left here is, Still pretty remarkable. is Eve. Right. Yeah. But there's still something special about the trees. Um, it has a spiritual dimension to it. It's not just a, a physical, it's a spiritual dimension that's sitting there with this realm. Right, right. Yeah, the one that we... The more, the more mysterious of the two is the, is the tree of life. Yeah. We just know so little about about that, yeah. Um, except that it seems to represent, you know, ultimately, like where it shows up is always in the place of communion with God. You know, pictures of it are in the temple and the tree itself is in the new heavens and the new earth, um, you know, yeah. Um, okay, talk about Eve. Um, a lot of this we have gone through uh, several times recently, you know, because we talk about this in the in the being human class about um, about relationships. Um, so there's this major break in the pattern um, of the text, and um, you know, whereas all the way through uh, everything that God has made is described as being good, the first thing described as not good um, is that the man is alone. Um, a couple things to note, um, you know, one is that the man is alone despite 
having fellowship with God. You know, and so there is this, um, you know, God can, God can say, you know, on the one hand, um, yeah, I mean, he can, he, can, he, can, he can say, despite having fellowship with me, nevertheless, there's something not good here, um, that, that, that humanity is alone uh, and not, you know, with another like him. Um, but the other thing to note is that um, gender distinction doesn't show up in Genesis 2 until after this point. So that word Adam uh, is a generic term for humanity, and that's the word that's been used all the way through. Um, the words for male and female, ish and isha, those actually don't show up until Genesis 2.23, um, and it's the man who speaks them uh, in this poem um, that he uh, declares uh, when, he, when he sees Eve. Um, you know, the implication being uh, that when God says it's not good uh, for the man to be alone, what he's saying is it's not good for humanity uh, to be alone. This isn't a, a male-specific uh, male thing. Um, Could you speak a bit more to that? So you mean like representatively, like it's not good when people are out of community? Like it's not good when people are isolated? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about this in the, um, in the being human class, you know, where, you know, you have to ask the question, so what, what, what is it that's not good? Uh, what is it that's not good about humanity being alone? And it's probably best um, to interpret that in the, in the context of this vocation that they've been given. You know, that it, it, it is something that, you know, one human by him or herself, uh, you know, cannot, cannot do. Um, you know, that, that there was something essential to uh, humanity created in the image of God, that it is male and female. This unity and diversity is essential to, um, to, 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 the, uh, to the image. That's not to say, you know, as we've said before, that is not to say that one human being by him or herself does not fully reflect that image because to be male is to assume, like male and female are only defined in terms of each other, right? And so whatever you are, you assume the other. You know, and so that unity and diversity is present in an individual, not only in a married couple, you know, for instance. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, we want to be careful to say that the main thing in view here, uh, when God says it's not good for humanity to be alone, you know, the main thing in view there isn't loneliness. Um, um, you know, as though the creation of Eve is the cure for loneliness. Because in the rest of Scripture, uh, loneliness is dealt with. Isolation is dealt with. But it's not dealt with primarily, uh, or certainly exclusively, uh, by marriage, but with friendship. Um, you know, by rich, you know, and by community. Um, yeah, I mean, so both, both friendships and also the the whole body, um, you know, is, is seen to be essential. Um, so certainly it's still, it is still the case, you know, that it's not good for humanity to be alone. It's not good for people to be isolated, but we don't want to zero in on, um, you know, this, this first marriage as though that were the, that were the cure for that problem. Yeah. Catherine, did you 
Oh, okay. Yes. No, no, I thought, well, I thought I saw your hand go up. Go ahead. Yeah. At the same time. So if we look at it in that new context that like Adam is just humanity, when people, when the New Testament says like as an Adam all men sin, it's not specifically assigning blame to male or to female, but rather just humanity like the first hmm. the first human representatives mm-hmm. rather than saying because the New Testament says as an Adam all men sin, but then you go back to Genesis and they point, well it's woman who kind of Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually, so we have to stop, but I'm actually going to s- more or less start there uh, next time, um, or suit into. I mean, when we when we look at the fall and we look at exactly what happens, there's some really interesting stuff there to to think about um, about the role that they both play and what the New Testament does with that. Um, so let me stop there uh, and let me let me pray for us, um, Father in heaven. Uh, we just continue to be thankful for your word, um, these first chapters uh, that inform us so much. Um, and we have a lot of questions. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things um, in these chapters that um, are uh, unclear and, and, and hard to understand. But, but what is clear, what shines through, uh, is your goodness, is your graciousness, uh, is your, your character. And, uh, you know, we always want to say... Um, you know, that the, um, the biggest problem that we have uh, is our failure to trust in that. Uh, and so, uh, please, Father, uh, reveal yourself uh, as good, uh, as, as loving, uh, as holy and just, uh, and draw us uh, to you even now as we go to worship you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to hijack it last year.